Hello and welcome to Six Minute English. I'm Dan, and joining me today is Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Dan. So, Catherine, do you prefer a brew or a cup of Joe in the morning? Ah, well, if you're referring to whether I prefer a cup of tea, which we sometimes call a brew, or a cup of coffee, sometimes called a cup of Joe, I prefer my coffee in the morning. I only drink coffee when I really need to wake up quickly.、Mm. And why are you asking, Dan? Because it's part of this six-minute English. Coffee, I see. So how do you take it then, Dan? Well, I'm an instant coffee kind of guy, and I like mine with a dash of milk. How about you? A dash of something is a small amount of something, especially liquid. Personally, I prefer freshly ground coffee beans, and I like my coffee dark and strong, preferably Colombian or maybe Brazilian. Wow, a coffee aficionado, eh? An aficionado is a person who's very enthusiastic about or interested in a particular subject. Well, let me test your knowledge with this week's quiz question. The speciality coffee Kopi Luwak is made from coffee beans which have already passed through an animal's digestive system. But which animal? Is it A, an elephant? B, a cat? Or C, a weasel?、Uh, I'm always going to answer B, a cat. Did you say this coffee actually goes through the animal, as in it eats it? And then it comes out the other end, and that's what we use for the coffee.、Uh, well, yes, it is actually one of the most expensive coffees in the world. Anyway, we'll find out if you're right or not later on. So, talking of expensive, do you tend to pay more for your coffee, or are you happy with the cheapest chip stuff? Cheapest chips means very cheap, and personally, I do actually like a quality product, and I am willing to pay a bit more for it. Would you be willing to pay even more than you already do if it meant that the farmer who grew the beans was getting a fairer price? I would, because I think that that sort of thing is important. And you aren't alone. There's a growing trend among many Western customers of artisan cafes to be willing to pay more for ethically produced coffee. Ethical means morally right. So, Dan, why is this trend happening at the moment? Well, it's probably been going on for a while, but a new report from the UN's World Intellectual Property Organization has observed the effect that smarter processing, branding, and marketing has had on the farmers and their communities. And because of this, coffee drinkers are better able to choose ethically produced coffee that puts more money in the hands of the farmers. But Dan, do the farmers actually see any of this money? Well, it's complicated. The price of the coffee is relatively cheap until it's been roasted or cooked in an oven. As a result, roasters take most of the profits. But there is still a difference. I'll let Jonathan Josephs, a business reporter for the BBC News, explain. For a pound of coffee beans that end up in the instant sold in supermarkets, the roaster can get over four dollars. But the export price is just one dollar forty-five. The farmer gets most of that, but when the new wave of socially aware customer pays a premium for higher standards, the roaster can get seventeen dollars forty-five, but the export price also rises to five dollars fourteen. A premium is an amount that's more than usual. So the farmer makes three and a half times as much money, which means a better quality of life for the farmer, their family, and their community. That's good news. I will definitely look for the ethically produced coffee from now on, as long as Dan it doesn't come out of some animal. Yes, actually, that <laughs> reminds me. Our quiz question: I asked you which animal the speciality coffee Kopi Luwak comes from. Is it A, an elephant? B, a cat? Or C, a weasel? And I said a cat. And you were wrong. I'm afraid Kopi Luwak comes from a type of weasel. I'm kind of relieved about that. Let's try not to think about it and have a look at the vocabulary instead. Okay, so first we had dash. A dash of something is a small amount of something, usually a liquid. Where might we talk about a dash of something, Dan? Well, I like my tea with a dash of milk, my gin with a dash of tonic, and my soup with a dash of salt. Then we had aficionado. 
An aficionado is someone who's very interested or enthusiastic about a subject. What are you an aficionado of? Uh, I'm working on becoming a bit of an accordion aficionado, actually, Dan. Wow, cool. Yeah. After that, we had cheap as chips. If something is cheap as chips, then it's very cheap indeed. Like my shoes. I bought them at a market for next to nothing. They were as cheap as chips. Then we had ethical. Something which is ethical is morally right. Do you consider yourself to be an ethical person, Catherine? Uh, well, I try, Dan. I don't always get it right, but I do attempt to be. After that, we heard roasted. Roasted means cooked in an oven, like our coffee beans. And of course, our very famous English roast. Finally, we had a premium. If you pay a premium, you pay more than usual, usually for a better quality or service. Can you think of an example? If you're going to the cinema, you might pay a premium to get more comfortable seats. And that's the end of this six-minute English. Don't forget to check out our YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello, this is Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. I'm Neil, and I'm Sam. Have you always wanted to learn to dance the tango, do a magic trick, or skydive? If so, perhaps you need a bucket list—a list of all the things you want to do before you die. That's the topic of our program. Bucket lists have been called the greatest hits of your life, and have helped some people overcome anxiety and fear of following their dreams. But they've also been accused of limiting the imagination by encouraging people to follow someone else's idea of the perfect life. So, what would be on your bucket list, Neil? Are you a skydiving kind of person? Mm, not really.、Uh, bungee jumping, maybe, as long as someone checked the elastic rope. How about you?、Um, one thing I've always wanted to do is swim with dolphins. Well, you're not alone there, Sam, because swimming with dolphins is one of the most commonly included personal goals on bucket lists. But which of the following things do you think tops the list? That's my quiz question for today. Is it A. Swimming with dolphins? B. Getting a tattoo? Or C, seeing the Northern Lights. I'll go for A, swimming with dolphins. One, because it's something I really want to do, and two, because I've heard so many stories about how it improves your mental health. Well, that was certainly true in the case of blogger Annette White. She listed hundreds of things she wanted to accomplish, from learning Spanish to hanging out with penguins in Antarctica, as a way of improving her psychological well-being. Here she is talking to Claudia Hammond for BBC Radio 4's program All in the Mind. You said you started all this to try to help you overcome your anxiety, and has it done that? It definitely has, and I feel that the reason is because that promise to live my bucket list really continuously pushes the comfort zone, you know, to its limits and beyond it. So every time I can have a chance to step out of my comfort zone. A little piece of that fear of the unknown is removed and replaced with a little piece of empowerment. And by continuously doing that, the size of my fear bubble has gotten smaller. Annette feels that choosing adventurous goals for her bucket list helps her step outside of her comfort zone, the situations where she feels safe and comfortable, but where her ability and determination are not really being tested. Moving out of her comfort zone has helped Annette. Replace her feelings of fear with feelings of empowerment. The process of becoming stronger and more confident, especially in controlling her life. Well, that all sounds pretty good to me, but not everyone is convinced that bucket lists can really help people like Annette in the long run. Here's clinical psychologist Linda Blair to explain why. I'm not really in favour of bucket lists. There are a couple of reasons. Most of all. You're kind of fooling yourself with a bucket list. We fear death more than I think we fear anything else in our existence because we can't predict it, and because we don't know what it's like because nobody comes back and tells us. And when you create a bucket list, something to do before you kick the bucket, the idea that you're giving yourself is that you can somehow control. When and what death is going to be all about? We only make sense of our lives at the end of it. 
a bucket list takes you away from the chance to be spontaneous. And I think it's so delicious to be able to say, that's an opportunity? Oh, I'll do that. Linda thinks some people use bucket lists as a coping strategy to try to control something uncontrollable, death. In this way, they're fooling or deceiving themselves, trying to make themselves believe something they know is not really true. And by having a checklist of adventures to tick off before they die, people might lose the chance to be spontaneous, to act in a natural or impulsive way without planning. Linda also uses an unusual expression, which gave bucket list its name in the first place. A bucket list is all the things you want to do before you kick the bucket, an informal way of saying die. Kick the bucket is an old English expression that was even used by Shakespeare. It refers to kicking the bucket away from under the feet of a hanging man, leaving him to drop to his death. Well, anyway, I hope I don't kick the bucket before I've had a chance to tell you the correct answer to today's quiz. Remember, I asked you which personal goal was most often included in bucket lists. I said, A, swimming with dolphins. But the actual answer was C, seeing the northern lights. Well, maybe we could combine the two in a single trip. And then get a tattoo. That would be spontaneous. Today, we've been discussing bucket lists. Lists of all the things you want to do before you kick the bucket. An informal way of saying die. Bucket lists can be a great way to feel empowered, stronger and more in control of your life because they take you out of your comfort zone, comfortable situations which are safe but not challenging. But others think you're fooling or deceiving yourself if you think bucket lists can really help you control your life. In fact, they might even make you less spontaneous, less able to act in natural, sudden and impulsive ways. That's all from us now. Why not go and make some plans for all the things you would like to achieve in your life? And start having adventures before we see you next time here at 6 Minute English from BBC Learning English. Bye. Bye-bye. 6 Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello and welcome to 6 Minute English. I'm Neil and joining me today is Rob. Hello. So, Rob, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever chosen to do? Mm, tricky question. I've done many risky things, but probably the most risky thing is bungee jumping in oh. New Zealand. Oh, wow, bungee jumping. You'd mm. never catch me doing that. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? Not really, no, I won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, today our topic is risk and how different people react to different levels of risk in different ways. For example, would you be happy to be in a driverless car? Absolutely not. No, I don't trust anybody's driving, even a computer. So, no, I wouldn't <laughs> go in a driverless car. OK, I won't offer you a lift. <laughs> driverless cars are the topic of today's quiz. The question is, when was the first driverless car demonstrated on a public road? Was it A, the 1970s, B, the 1950s, or C, the 1920s? Uh, well, I think they're quite modern, so I'm going to say 1970s. OK, well, we'll find out if you're right at the end of the programme. Joe Cable is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. In a recent BBC Science programme, All in the Mind, he talked about the psychology of risk and whether there was anything physically in our brains that could predict how much risk we are prepared to accept. Here he is, first talking about a number of different ways people see risk. How many different types does he describe? Some people are quite risk-averse and really don't want to take any decisions where there's risk involved at all, whereas others are fairly risk-tolerant and in some cases even risk-seeking. So <laughs> they seek out um, decisions that have an aspect of risk to them. How many different types of people did he mention when it comes to attitudes to risk? Well, there were three. The first group was those who are risk-averse. If you are averse to something, you're against it. You don't like it. So risk-averse people don't like to take risks. The second group are those who are risk-tolerant. If you are tolerant of something, you accept it, you don't mind it, it's not a problem for you. So someone who is risk-tolerant is not worried by an element of risk in what they choose to do. The third group he mentioned are those who are risk-seeking. If you seek something, you actively look for it, you try to find it. So risk-seekers are those who enjoy risk 
and want to take risks in their life. Associate Professor Cable carried out research on risk-taking and discovered that there were differences in brain structure and the way parts of the brain work together between those who are risk-averse and those who are risk-tolerant or risk-seekers. So it seems as if this is something that could be measured. You could put someone in a brain scanner and tell if they like risk or not. I wonder how useful that would be, though. Is there any practical application for this knowledge? Good question, and one that was put to Cable. What area does he say this could be applied to? Definitely something that I can see coming out of this is using these associations to help develop better assessments of who's likely to take risks versus not. This is exactly the thing that, that financial advisors want to assess when you come to them and say, I want to put my money away for retirement. <laughs> exactly the aspect of your personality that they want to know is what's your tolerance for taking risk. In which area does he say knowledge of someone's attitude to risk might be useful? Financial planning. He says that financial advisors, who are people that give advice on what to do with our money, would find this information very useful. It would help them to assess what to do with your money, which means it would help them to decide to make an intelligent decision about your money in certain situations. For example, if you're planning for your retirement, retirement is the time when you are able to or you have to stop working. He also used an interesting expression there, to put your money away, which means save your money, put it somewhere where you can't spend it and where it can grow. You know, I think my financial planner could just ask me about how I feel about risk rather than giving me a brain scan. I heard brain scans can be risky. Mm, not sure that's true, but anyway... What is true is the answer to this week's quiz question. I asked you when the first driverless car was demonstrated on a public road. The options were A, the 1970s, B, the 1950s, and C, the 1920s. What did you say, Rob? I said the 1970s. And you were wrong, I'm afraid. Apparently it was the 1920s, so a long time ago. Well done if you got that right. Now, before we drive off into the sunset, let's recap today's vocabulary. Yes, right. First, we had three words describing different attitudes to risk. There was risk-averse for people who don't like risk. People who don't mind risk are risk-tolerant. And people who like risk and want risk are risk-seekers. Next, we had the verb to assess. This means to make a judgment or a decision based on information. A phrase meaning to save money is to put money away. And finally, we had retirement, that time of life when you are too old to work anymore or you have enough money that you don't need to work anymore. Are you looking forward to your retirement, Rob? Oh, cheeky. I'm neither old enough nor rich enough to even think about that, Neil. <laughs> Same here. Well, that's all from us today. And you don't have to be a risk seeker to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And, of course, on our website, bbclearningenglish.com. Thank you for joining us and goodbye. Bye-bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello, I'm Rob, and welcome to Six Minute English, the show that brings you an interesting topic and authentic listening practice. And don't forget vocabulary to help you improve your language skills. I'm Neil, by the way, and today we're off on an adventure. Yes, but not a very big adventure, Neil. It's just a mini or micro adventure. But if you have wanderlust, a strong desire to travel, I think it may appeal. It will appeal to you, Rob, because you love to travel. Haven't you circumnavigated the globe? I mean, gone all the way around the world. Uh, well, almost, Neil, but today's mini-adventure doesn't involve travelling too far from home. We'll explore the topic more in a moment, but not before we've set today's quiz question. So, Neil, do you know how far it is around the world measured at the equator? In other words, the circumference. Is it approximately A, 30,000 kilometres, B, 40,000 kilometres, or C, 50,000 kilometres? Well, I haven't walked it, but I know it's a long way, so I'll go for C, 50,000 kilometres. Right, I shall keep you in suspense and tell you the answer at the end of the programme. Now, our topic for discussion today won't be travelling so far. It's about a new trend for small adventures. What you mean are shorter breaks, closer to home. They're less expensive, of course, but also instil a sense of adventure. That's the feeling of doing a new, exciting and sometimes dangerous activity. Well, adventurer Alistair Humphreys has coined the phrase micro-adventures to describe this. 
To coin here means to use a word or phrase that no one has used before. Now, he's someone who goes on big trips and expeditions to the four corners of the globe and writes books about his adventures. But he wanted to prove you don't have to go far to find adventure. Let's hear from him now, speaking on BBC Radio 4's You and Yours programme, about what he did. How did he describe his first micro-adventure? I'd been doing big adventures for years and I had this hunch that you didn't need to go to the ends of the world to have some sort of adventure. You didn't need to be in beautiful Patagonia to have this spirit of adventure. So I decided to try and prove my theory by doing the most boring, ugly adventure I could think of and I came up with the idea of walking a lap of the M25 in the snow in January. And time and again, as I walked around the M25, I just kept thinking to myself, this experience is exactly the same as the four years I spent cycling around the world. Smaller, of course, a bit silly, but definitely felt like an adventure. And that's when I really started to come up with the idea of micro-adventures. So, a micro-adventure is a boring, ugly adventure. <laughs> no, Neil. It may not be glamorous, but it is an adventure. He walked around the London Orbital Motorway, called the M25, to prove his hunch that you don't need to go far to find adventure. A hunch is an idea you have based on feelings, but there's no proof. Well, his hunch was right, but walking alongside a motorway isn't my idea of adventure. No, it doesn't have to be, Neil. Just getting out on your bike and exploring somewhere in your locality that you haven't visited before is an adventure. What about camping? Ah, uh, yes, I do like to camp out. Now, that's a phrasal verb to mean sleep outside in a tent. You can be so close to nature and breathe in the fresh air. Ah, yes, and you don't need to go far for a camping adventure. And being out at night really adds to the sense of adventure. That's what Alistair Humphreys believes. We humans are so boring these days. We so rarely spend time out in the darkness to see the stars and to see how the, the world feels different by night. I get a little bit nervous still. I still imagine ghosts. <laughs> but, but that's part of the, the charm of making the little frisson of adventure. And then in the morning, the sun comes up, the birds sing, jump in a river, back on the bus, back to your desk for nine o'clock. Seeing how the world feels at night is a nice idea. Getting a bit nervous, anxious maybe, is part of the pleasure or enjoyment, what Alistair calls charm. I agree, and he used another word, frisson, meaning a sudden strong feeling of excitement or fear. Hmm, my biggest fear will be returning to my desk for nine o'clock. But Alistair is right, there is an adventure to be had on your doorstep. That means close to where you live. But only a small adventure, Rob, unlike an adventure around the circumference of the Earth. Ah, yes, that was my question earlier. How far is it around the world measured at the equator? In other words, the circumference. Is it approximately A, 30,000 kilometres, B, 40,000 kilometres, or C, 50,000 kilometres? And I said C, 50,000 kilometres. Mm, sorry, Neil, too far. The Earth's circumference has been calculated to be 40,075 kilometres. To travel that distance would be a major adventure. OK, I think we should remind ourselves of some of the words and phrases we've discussed today, starting with wanderlust, a strong desire to travel. Rob has wanderlust. He's never at home. That's because I have a sense of adventure. That's the feeling of doing a new, exciting and sometimes dangerous activity. Neil has no sense of adventure because he likes his holidays to be planned out with no surprises. That's a little unfair, Rob. I just like to be holiday happy. That's a term I've just coined, which means used a word or phrase that no one has used before. You can also say to coin a phrase after using an expression that is well known and possibly used too much. Next, we heard hunch. That's an idea you have based on feelings, but there's no proof. I have a hunch Neil wants to go to the pub. He's packing his bag. Your hunch is correct, Rob, but not before we recap our next word, charm. That's part of the pleasure or enjoyment of something. Part of the charm of going to the seaside is eating ice cream and walking down the pier. And finally, we heard on your doorstep, which means close to where you live. There's a pub right on your doorstep, so why don't you make the most of it? I intend to, Rob, but first let me remind you that you can learn English with us at bbclearningenglish.com. That's it for today's Six Minute English. We hope you enjoyed it. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello, this is Six Minute English and I'm Neil. And joining me to do this is Georgina. Hello. Now, Georgina, I know you went to university to study for a degree, but before you moved from college to university, did you take a year off? I did. 
well. You are not alone. Many students choose to take a break from their studies to travel or gain work experience before moving on to university. Yes, and this is what we call a gap year. And in this programme, we're talking about taking a gap year and why doing this has become more important than ever. But first, as always, I need to challenge you and our listeners, Georgina, to answer a question. Are you ready? Ready and waiting, Neil. According to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which subject studied at university will lead to the highest average earnings five years after graduating? Is it A, law, B, veterinary science, or C, medicine and dentistry? What do you think, Georgina? Well, all are subjects that involve lots of studying, but as a guess, I think those studying veterinary science end up working as vets and earning the most money. So it's B, I think. OK, well, we'll find out if you're right at the end of the programme. Let's get back to talking about gap years. As the name suggests, it's a break or gap in between your studies. We might also call it a year out. It's not a new concept, meaning idea, and there are a number of reasons why someone may choose to take one. That's right. The BBC's Smart Consumer podcast looked at this and heard from two students. One, Meg, took a gap year and the other, Tom, didn't. Let's hear from them now. I knew I wanted to go to university, but I decided I'll do it a year out and that way I can wait until I get my official results and apply to university with those rather than getting predicted grades and then, you know, potentially being surprised and not being able to follow the path that I wanted. I just always had in the back of my mind that I'd spend a year doing something productive and something that would just be good fun. It's not something that I really knew about, to be honest, I think, until I started university. And it was just a bit of an alien concept to me. It was something I never thought about. It would have been far too expensive and it's not something that I would have been able to rely on my parents or family members for. Two different experiences there. So Meg said that she had, in the back of my mind, doing a gap year. That means she had the idea but didn't think about it frequently. It was stored deep in her memory. And she had the idea of doing something productive. That means leading to a good or useful outcome and, of course, having fun at the same time. She also wanted to do something while she waited for her exam results to come in rather than applying for a university place based on predicted results, which may turn out to be wrong. If something is predicted, it's an estimation of what is likely to happen in the future based on current information. Now, Tom had a different experience. He wasn't really aware of the gap year and described it as an alien concept. So an idea that is strange and not familiar. Tom also mentioned a gap year would have been too expensive. But according to Chris Rea from the organisation Prospects, it needn't cost a lot of money. Speaking on BBC Radio 4's You and Yours programme, he says it's about gaining skills and being more employable. I think the, the experience of the gap year has become actually much more practical, um, partly, as I say, to do with the university participation increasing, but also because of the demands on developing skills, specifically employability skills. Actually, from an employer's point of view, certainly, any form of experience and skills acquisition that you've undertaken is valuable. According to Chris Rea, the focus these days is for a gap year to be more practical. This adjective describes the learning of real skills which can be usefully applied. Yes, and these are skills that help you compete for a place at university and ultimately make you more employable. They help you get a job. Right, but which job might earn you the most money, Georgina? Earlier I asked you, according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which subject studied at university will lead to the highest average earnings five years after graduating? Is it A, law, B, veterinary science, or C, medicine and dentistry? What did you say, Georgina? I said veterinary science. Was I correct? Sadly, you weren't. The correct answer is C, medicine and dentistry. According to research in the UK, graduates of medicine and dentistry earn an average of £46,700. That's more than an English teacher, I suspect, but that's not going to stop us recapping today's vocabulary. OK, so we've been talking about a gap year. That's a year between leaving school and starting university that is usually spent travelling or working. 
When we say something is at the back of my mind, we mean an idea we don't think about frequently but keeps stored deep in our memory. And when something is productive, it describes something that leads to a good or useful outcome. Next, we mention the word predicted. If something is predicted, it's an estimation of what is likely to happen in the future based on current information. An alien concept is an idea that is strange and not familiar. And when you're doing something practical, you're doing something that is real and useful because you learn skills that can be used in the future. Thank you, Georgina, for that practical run-through of our vocabulary. So that's all from Six Minute English for now. Goodbye. Bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello. This is Six Minute English, and I'm Rob. I'm Sam. Hello. Now, Sam, we're going to be talking about tattoos. Are you a fan of tattoos? Hmm. Well, I don't have one, but they can be quite impressive works of art. Well, I'm not that keen on tattoos. I mean, who wants things drawn on their body?、Mm, it sounds like you need some convincing, Rob. Maybe our discussion today will change your mind. Maybe, but as you're a fan of them, here's a question for you to answer. According to the Guinness World Records, the record for the most tattooed person in the world goes to Lucky Diamond Rich from New Zealand. Do you know how much of his body is covered by tattoos? Is it A, 80%, B, 90%, or C, 100%? What do you think, Sam? Well, it's got to be 100% if he is the most tattooed man, surely.、Uh, not necessarily, but we'll see if you're right at the end of the program. Now let's talk more about tattoos. I know many people have them. Sometimes it's a picture of an animal, like a small gecko. Sometimes it's words like "I love you" or the name of a loved one. And then there are the huge designs spread across someone's back, chest, or arm, like footballer David Beckham has.、Mm, well, he's no stranger to a tattoo parlor. A parlor is the name of the shop where a tattoo artist draws a tattoo on you with ink and a needle. Oh, needles! Ouch.、Mm -hmm. Okay, so you need some convincing. So let's hear from Lucy Parfit, YouTuber and tattoo fan. Here she is speaking on the BBC's Smart Consumer podcast. I'm quite a creative person, and ever since I first discovered tattoos, I, I thought it was a really cool way of expressing yourself. I'm quite a visual person as well, so for me, it really like just looked really cool, and it made me think more about my own like personality and how I could express that in creative ways. Right. So Lucy describes herself as a creative person. When you're creative. You're imaginative, and you like to experiment with new ideas. Yes, Rob. And tattoos are a good way to be creative, trying out different designs and colours. It's a good way to express yourself. Here, to express yourself means to show how you feel in a particular way. Okay, so some people express themselves through singing or wearing particular clothing, but here she's expressing herself through the images on her skin. But what happens if you want to change what you want to express? Well, then it's time for a new tattoo. Okay. Well, I know that the tattoo industry is big business now, which means it's popular and making lots of money. I've heard that one in five people now have a tattoo.、Hmm. Not you yet, Rob, but it has certainly become a trend in recent years, and it's something tattoo artist Lee Clements has noticed. Also speaking on the BBC's Smart Consumer podcast, he explains why he thinks that is. The thing for me that has obviously changed massively over the last possibly ten years is you see a lot of celebrities getting tattooed. With that comes the fact that you're going to get people who want to copy them, or、um, it becomes almost like a fashion thing. So you do see certain tattoos sort of、um, becoming a trend and. Yeah, so I guess it kind of dilutes that that value a little bit. Yeah. Ah, so it's celebrities, famous, well-known people from TV, film, and fashion, that have possibly driven the trend. People want to copy them, or it's what he says is a fashion thing. So you have a tattoo because it's fashionable, which means it's popular at a particular time. And one of the downsides. The negative things about just having one to be fashionable is it dilutes the individuality of having one. Dilute means to make something less strong 
or less valuable? Well, I'm not going to get one anytime soon, except maybe a big six on my arm to remind me that we only have six <laughs> minutes of this program. So I'd better reveal the answer to the question I asked you earlier. According to Guinness World Records, the record for the most tattooed person in the world goes to Lucky Diamond Rich from New Zealand. Did you know how much of his body is covered by tattoos? And I said 100%. Ah, well done, Sam. That is correct. Yay! He's held the certified record since 2006 of being 100% tattooed. This includes tattoos inside his eyelids, mouth and ears. Wow. I wonder who gets to see those. <laughs> OK, well, now it's time to recap the vocabulary we've discussed today, starting with a parlour. That's the name for a shop or room where certain businesses carry out their trade, such as a tattoo parlour, a massage parlour or an ice cream parlour. A creative person is someone who uses imagination and experiments with new ideas. And when you express yourself, it means you show outwardly how you feel and what you're thinking. If something is big business, it's an activity that is currently popular and making lots of money. And something that is fashionable is popular. And when something becomes popular, it can dilute its value or uniqueness, so it becomes less strong or less valuable. OK, thank you, Sam. That's all for now, but there's plenty more on our website at bbclearningenglish.com. If you can't remember the address, why not tattoo it on your arm? <laughs> you can also find us on social media and on our app. Goodbye for now. Bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello and welcome to Six Minute English. I'm Neil. Hi, and I'm Catherine. Now, Catherine, when was the last time you went for a walk in the country for fun, for exercise or relaxation? People do that? <laughs> well, believe it or not, they do. Oh, interesting. People are strange. Well, it sounds like you should pay close attention to today's programme because it's all about how fewer and fewer people are venturing out into the country. Well, I wonder if that word is part of the problem. To venture out somewhere suggests that it's a really big challenge or even a, a risky activity. I don't think a walk in the country is a particularly dangerous activity, even in bad weather. It's not one of the reasons people gave in a recent survey for why they don't do it. In fact, one of the biggest reasons people gave was that it wouldn't look good on their social media. Well, of course. Why would you go for a walk in the rain in the country if you couldn't get good snaps for your social media account? Interesting you should say that because it's the topic of this week's quiz question. In the survey, what percentage of people gave the poor social media photo opportunity as their reason for not wanting to venture out into the countryside? Was it A, around 10%, B, around 30%, or C, around 50%? What do you think? To be honest, I don't think that would be a good excuse at all. So I'm going to say it's just 10%. Listen out for the answer at the end of the programme. Annabelle Shackleton is from an organisation called LEAF, Linking Environment and Farming. They want to encourage more people to visit the countryside. She recently appeared on the BBC's Farming Today radio programme. She gave her response to the survey we mentioned, which revealed that many of us prefer to stay indoors. What does she say a quarter of people in the survey know and believe? I can't believe that four in ten millennials think that they should spend more time in the countryside and a quarter of them know and believe that it's you know, much better to, and easier to relax in the countryside, but they're just not going out. It's phenomenal. She was talking about a group in the survey which she called millennials. This term refers to people who are young adults now, people who were born in the 1980s and 1990s. Are you a millennial, Neil? No, I'm actually Generation X, the age group before millennials. We were born in the 1960s, 70s and early 80s. Shackleton said that a quarter of millennials know and believe that it's better and easier to relax in the country, but they just don't go. She thought it was phenomenal. Now, this adjective means that something is incredible, unbelievable. It's often used for something that's positive, something's very impressive or amazing. In this case, though, she is using it to say how shocked and surprised she is that people know going out in the country is good and a great way to relax, but they still don't do it. So what explanation does she have for this phenomenal behaviour? Here's Annabel Shackleton again. 
There are just so many other distractions and it's just so easy for people to stay indoors. You know, when they're using excuses like they haven't got the right clothing, um, it's not Instagrammable, would you believe it? And yes, it's a shame. She said that there are many other distractions. A distraction is something that takes your attention away from doing something. Usually we think of a distraction as something that delays us from doing something more important. These days we have a lot of distractions or things that offer us easy entertainment. And so it's very easy to come up with an excuse for not taking the time to go outside. Another very good excuse, of course, is the weather. It's not a lot of fun to go out if it's cold and pouring with rain. Well, a very wise person once said that there's no such thing as the wrong weather, just the wrong clothing. True, Neil, but you have to have the right clothing in the first place and if the weather's terrible, you might not be able to get good pictures for your Instagram account. They might not be Instagrammable. Now, you're not going to find that word in the dictionary, but you probably know that the suffix able means possible. So put able on the end of Instagram and you get Instagrammable. And that brings us neatly back to our question. What percentage of people in the survey said that they wouldn't go out in the country because they wouldn't get good pictures for social media? Was it around 10%, 30% or 50%? What did you say, Catherine? I said 10 and the answer was about 30. What is the world coming to? I don't know what the world's coming to, but we are coming to the end of the programme. So time to review today's vocabulary. We started off with to venture out somewhere, which means simply to go out somewhere, but usually when the conditions are bad. For example, it was pouring with rain, but I still decided to venture out to the shops. We heard about Millennials and Generation X, different age groups. Millennials are those who became adults in the early 21st century. And Generation X are from the previous generation who became adults in the 1980s and 90s. Something phenomenal is amazing, surprising and unbelievable. And then we had distractions for activities that prevent us from doing more important things. And one of the biggest distractions is social media. Put the suffix able onto the end of the name of a social media platform and you create a word that describes something that's suitable for posting. So, Instagrammable. BBC Learning English is certainly Instagrammable, Facebookable, tweetable and YouTubeable. You can find us on all of those platforms as well as on our website. So do check us out there before joining us again for more 6-Minute English. Goodbye. Goodbye. 6-Minute English from BBC Learning English. Welcome to 6-Minute English, the programme where we explore an interesting topic and bring you some useful items of vocabulary. I'm Rob. And I'm Neil. Now, Neil, I know you're a keen swimmer. I am. I try to get to the pool once a week and do a few lengths, yes. Mm, that's good to hear because swimming is one of the best sports for keeping fit. It's an aerobic exercise. Aerobic means a very active type of exercise that makes your heart and lungs stronger. The opposite of this is anaerobic. And for my question today, Neil, I wonder if you know which of these activities is an example of anaerobic exercise. A, weightlifting, B, kickboxing, or C, dancing. Mm, I don't have a clue, but I'll pick my favourite sport, A, weightlifting. Right, is that really your favourite sport? Right. Anyway, we'll find out the answer at the end of the programme. So, what about you, Rob? Do you visit the swimming pool very often? <laughs> Only to use the cafe. I don't like anything aquatic, I mean connected to water. I just don't like getting wet, and swimming up and down a pool is just... Boring. Well, there are alternatives to plain swimming. There's synchronised swimming. Right, synchronised. That's moving together at the same time or speed as someone else. Like dancing in water, I suppose. Hmm, I'm not a good dancer either. Uh, how about the new craze of mermaiding, which is making a splash at the moment? In other words, becoming very popular. The idea originated in America but is now popular in the UK and Europe. OK, well, tell me more. Let's hear from an expert, Emma Longdon who's the founder of fin to fit which runs classes teaching the skills of swimming safely like a mermaid. Mermaiding is putting a monofin on your feet, putting a beautiful tail on and getting in the water and swimming like a mermaid. OK, so I would need to wear a monofin 
The prefix mono means only one or single, so a single fin. That's like a mermaid's tail. And then I just get in the water and swim around like a mermaid. I'm not so sure about that, Neil. I don't really know how mermaids swim. There's more to it than that, Rob. It's actually good for your fitness, as Emma can explain. It gives um, children's confidence in water as a boost. It improves their water strength. It gives you an entire body workout. It works your cardiovascular system. It works your legs, your core. It improves the children's swimming technique, flexibility, balance, coordination. You get the reward, you get the social aspect, and alongside all of that, they're learning vital life skills along the way. So there are many benefits to mermaiding, Rob. Improving confidence, strength, technique, and it's good for your cardiovascular system. Cardiovascular relates to your heart and blood vessels. Well, I like the sound of the social aspect, and by that, Emma means being with other people and having fun. It's an activity that's sociable. And it teaches life skills, useful skills that help you deal with everyday challenges. Well, that's great for kids, and that's the problem. What's that? Mermaiding is for kids, so I can't get involved, even if I wanted to. Can I? You can, Rob. According to Emma, it's growing in popularity with adults too. Any excuse to live out your fantasies, hey? There are so many adults that actually kind of want to live out their childhood dreams that they wanted to be a mermaid when they were children and they didn't get the opportunity and now it's here and now it's available. And so, yes, we do a lot, lot of adult classes as well. There you go, Rob. Living out your childhood dreams. That's doing things you wanted to do when you were a child, like being a mermaid. Sorry, Neil, that wasn't a dream for me, although I did dream of swimming like a shark once. Anyway, mermaiding is a good form of aerobic exercise, but earlier I asked you what an example of anaerobic exercise is. Is it A, weightlifting, B, kickboxing, or C, dancing? I said weightlifting. Was I right? You were, Neil. Well done. Any exercise that consists of short exertion, high-intensity movement is an anaerobic exercise, such as weightlifting, sprinting and jumping. I won't go into scientific detail, but aerobics exercise is done over a longer period of time and strengthens the heart and lungs, thereby improving the body's utilisation of oxygen. Thanks for that, Rob. Now I think we should sprint through our recap of some of the words we've talked about today, starting with aerobic, which you just explained. Mermaiding is a good aerobic workout. Assuming you don't mind dressing up, of course. Next we had aquatic, which refers to something connected with water. Synchronised swimming is an example of an aquatic sport. Ah, you slipped in another of our words there, synchronised, which means moving together at the same time or speed as someone or something else. We synchronised our watches so that we all arrived at the same time. Good idea. You're always late, Neil. Huh. Then we mentioned mono, which means one or single, and is used as a prefix on words such as monochrome, one colour, or monorail, a train running on a single track. Then we heard the word cardiovascular, a word that relates to the effect on your heart and lungs. Experts say those who quit smoking could also quickly reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease. Finally, we also mentioned social. This adjective relates to activities that you do with other people and are usually fun. Now I live in London, I have a great social life. Well, you never invite me out, Rob. Mm, sorry. Anyway, that's it for this edition of Six Minute English. Before you rush off to fulfil your dream of being a mermaid, don't forget to visit our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube pages and, of course, our website. Yes, and that's at bbclearningenglish.com. Bye for now. Goodbye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Welcome to Six Minute English, where we introduce a colourful topic and six suitable items of vocabulary. I'm Tim. And I'm Neil. Why are you wearing a policeman's hat, Tim? To get me in the mood for our topic today, uniforms. Well, the hat certainly suits you. And if something suits you, it looks good on you. Well, thanks, Neil. And funnily enough, I have a question for you on the subject of police hats. In the 19th century, police officers' top hats could be used A. To stand on B. As a weapon or C. To protect their heads from the sun Hmm, well, they're kind of pointy, so I'm going to say as a weapon OK, let's consider what the point of a uniform is 
Why do some jobs have them while others don't? Well, the police and other emergency services like the fire brigade and ambulance service, they need practical clothes to help them do their job. People need to recognise them too, don't they? Yeah, that's right. A uniform makes people stand out from the crowd. If something stands out, it's noticeable or easy to see. But uniforms also allow you to fit in. It shows you belong to a particular group or organisation, and people often enjoy that sense of community at work. Do you think we should get some six-minute English T-shirts made, Neil? Uh, well, we share a sense of community without team T-shirts, Tim. Let's listen to cultural historian Joe Moran talking about why wearing a uniform can also allow you to behave differently to the way you normally behave. It's a role and a genre that you adopt, and it's kind of it's something that's not quite you. It's a it's a kind of persona that you can put on. In Germany, they call it Maskenfreiheit, which is the freedom conferred by masks. There's something about taking on a, a what is very clearly a persona or professional role that can be liberating. I think. So when you put on a uniform, you are adopting a role or genre. Genre means a particular style, and a persona is a character you present to the outside world, as opposed to the person you feel like inside. Joe Moran compares putting on a persona to putting on a mask, and he says this can be very liberating. But do you really think putting on a uniform liberates or frees us from the person we really are? Maybe if you're shy, for example, a uniform might feel liberating because it allows you to behave more confidently. So, if you could choose a uniform and a new persona, what would it be, Tim? Hmm, an airline pilot, I think. I'd look great in a blazer with brass buttons, with the cap and the mirror sunglasses. Hello, this is your captain speaking. We'll shortly be arriving at LAX Airport in sunny Los Angeles. Local time is twelve fifty-five, and it's hot, hot, hot outside. So I hope you've packed. Okay, of Tim, stop, 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 stop. I can see you'd love to be a pilot, or at least you'd love talking to your passengers. What about you, Neil? What would you like to try on for size? A surgeon's scrubs? Ooh, a nun's habit. <laughs> to try something on for size means to decide whether it's what you want or not.、Uh, no, Tim, I'd go for a chef's apron, check trousers, and a tall hat. I think the uniform would suit you. But are you good at cooking, Neil?、Oh, I'm an excellent cook. Now, I think we should have the answer to today's quiz question, Tim. Yes, I asked what a police officer's hat could be used for in the 19th century, and I said as a weapon. Wrong, I'm afraid. From 1829 to 1839, Metropolitan police officers wore a cane-reinforced top hat, which could be used as a step to climb or see over walls. I wonder if modern police hats are strong enough to stand on. <laughs> we'll try yours later and find out. But now let's go over the other key words we learned today. Okay, if something suits you, it looks good on you. For example, does this pilot's uniform suit me, Neil? It suits you down to the ground, Tim, and that means it suits you very well. Number two, if something stands out, it's noticeable or easy to see. My colourful suit really stood out at the party. In a good way, I hope. Okay, next item to fit in means you belong to a particular group and are accepted by them. I never fitted in with the cool kids at school. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Tim. Maybe you weren't wearing the right uniform. Number four is persona, the character you present to the outside world, as opposed to the person you feel like inside. My work persona is confident and chatty, but I'm actually rather shy. I'm learning a lot about you today, Tim. They're just examples, Neil. I don't have a work persona. That's the nice thing about our job. There's no need to put on masks or personas. Just the occasional hat, indeed, and a very nice hat this is too. I think I'll keep it. Now let's finish the vocabulary. Number five, liberating, means feeling you can behave however you like. For example, talking openly about your problems can be very liberating. And finally, to try something on for size means to test something to decide whether you want it or not. Our listeners can try these new vocabulary items on for size and decide whether they'll be useful or not.
And if not, then please let us know by visiting our Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube pages and telling us what you think. Goodbye. Bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. Hello and welcome to Six Minute English. I'm Catherine. And I'm Rob. And today we'll bring you a techie topic along with six up to date vocabulary items. That's right. And today's techie topic is smartphones. So, Rob, can you tell me which age group have been buying smartphones at the fastest rate over the last five years here in the UK? Is it A, 15 to 35 year olds, B, 35 to 55 year olds, or C, 55 to 75 year olds? Okay, it's got to be the youngsters, hasn't it? It's got to be the 15 to 35 year olds. Oh, well, we'll see whether you got that right or wrong later on in the show. Now, Rob, a question. Hmm. How old is your smartphone? Okay, well, mine I bought a couple of years ago. And are you happy with it? Yes, I am. It works just fine. It does everything I need it to do. So you're not worried about not having the latest model? Not at all. My phone works really well. It has all the functionality I need, and I'm not convinced that the latest model offers any more than the one I've got, to be honest. Right. Well, functionality refers to the range of functions a computer or other electronic device can perform. So let's listen now to Andrew Orlovsky from the tech news website The Register. He explains why people are holding on to their phones longer instead of rushing out to buy the latest model of phone. What's happened is that prices have gone up at the, at the high end. And it's a kind of a cycle where people hang on to their phones for longer, therefore manufacturers charge more, and then people hang on to them longer to justify that, that higher um, purchase. So, big brand names like iPhone and Samsung make phones at the high end of the market, meaning the expensive ones. So once people have bought a handset, they hang on to it. If you hang on to something, you keep it. I've been hanging on to my phone for a couple of years and I'm hoping I won't need to change it for another year or so, at least. But what happens is, if people aren't replacing their phones, the phone manufacturers don't make a big enough profit, so they start charging more. And this in turn makes people hang on to their phones even longer. So that's why Andrew Olofsky calls it a cycle. That's where one event leads to another and then often repeats itself. So where will the cycle end? Good question. Let's listen to Andrew again talking about where he thinks the smartphone market is heading. I think it's a very mature market now, and, and, and you have to compare, say, a, a, a £900 Galaxy Note or a £1,000 iPhone with, a, with a, a spectacular TV you can... 49-inch TV you can get for £450. Yeah. It no longer has that kind of must-have luster that it might have had four or five years ago. So what does mature mean, Rob? Mature means fully grown. We're mature adults, for example, Catherine. And in a business context, a mature market is where supply is equal to demand. And if something has must-have luster, what's that? A must-have item is something you feel you must have. And luster means shine. Oh, I love shiny new things, especially when it's a nice piece of new tech. But £1,000 is a lot of money for a phone. A spectacular 49-inch TV for only £450 sounds like a bargain, though. My TV's only got a small screen. Yeah, we'll stop there, Catherine. It's time for the answer to today's question. OK, so which age group have been buying smartphones at the fastest rate over the last five years here in the UK? Is it A, 15 to 35-year-olds, B, 35 to 55-year-olds, or C, 55 to 75 year olds. And I said the youngsters, 15 to 35 year olds. And you were absolutely wrong, I'm oh. afraid, Rob. The answer is 55 to 75 year olds. Although research also highlighted that this age group tended to use their smartphones less than younger people. The study was based on a sample of 1,163 people questioned between May and June in 2017. Mm, interesting. OK, well, I think it's time we looked back at the words we learned today. Our first word is functionality, which refers to the range of functions a computer or other electronic device can perform. These two computers are similar in terms of both their price and functionality. 
Good example, Catherine. Number two, if you hang on to something, you keep it. For example, you should hang on to your old TV, Catherine. There's nothing wrong with a 30-inch screen. Thanks for the advice, Rob. And our next word is cycle. That's where one event leads to another and then often repeats itself. For example, I'm in a bad cycle of going to bed late and then oversleeping in the morning. You need to sort yourself out, Catherine. (laughs) You're spending too much time on social media and all that blue screen time makes it very hard to fall asleep. The last thing you need is a bigger TV. You're probably right. Okay, so the adjective mature means fully grown or fully developed. And here's an example of the verb form. My investments have matured and they're worth a lot of money now. Right, moving on. A must-have item is something you feel you must have. For example, check out the latest must-have tech bargains on our website. Like a huge TV. Yes. (laughs) And finally, luster, which means shine. For example, I polished my brass doorknob until it shone with a pleasing luster. OK, so before Rob heads off to polish his doorknob and I nip out to buy a big new television, please remember to check out our Facebook, Twitter and YouTube pages. Bye-bye. Bye. Six Minute English from BBC Learning English.